0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: When it comes to the issue of vaccines, we're going to speak now with Darrell Bricker, the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. They've done some significant polling for Global News in the past few days. And uh, one of these polls has to do with uh, people's attitude toward the vaccine or any potential vaccine once it's developed. Should it be mandatory or should Canadians have a choice about what they're going to do as far as, you know, showing up for the vaccine or not showing up for the vaccine? Let's start with that. Darrell, thank you very much for taking the time, and I have to tell you, we're still getting emails, and I'm still getting, well, quite a few emails, and we're still seeing on Twitter a reaction to our conversation last Sunday with you about your great book, Next, about what's ahead for Canada.
2: Well, thanks, Ray. It really was a great opportunity to to talk about five years' worth of work, so uh, it was, uh, I was uh, very happy to hear that you wanted to talk about it
0: yeah it's uh and it's such an important book as as we said uh, as i've been saying all along it's important for every canadian to read this if you want to know where we're headed and where we should be headed read daryl's book next so on the polling that ipsos did for global news let's look at the vaccine issue first 72 percent say the vaccine should be mandatory this is nationally 41 percent strongly agree with that daryl 32 percent somewhat uh, how does that breakdown work
1: Well,
2: whenever you use the word mandatory for anything, uh, it does get the the backs up on a a certain percentage of the population. So uh, I I think that there's a a fair amount that you could see in these data that suggests that just saying it isn't going to be enough. In other words, uh, if it's going to be mandatory, it has to be something that people would actually see as effective, it probably would definitely have to be something that they would see as not a greater risk to their health. So uh, vaccines, people believe that they work, uh, even though, you know, there is obviously a fairly robust uh, uh, anti-vax contingency and contingent in the population. But most people, uh, you know, are prepared to consider it. And I think that's the way to look at those numbers.
0: I found another statistic from this particular poll very interesting. 67% of Canadians believe a vaccine must be available, if I'm understanding this correctly, before Canada can reopen. And I wonder whether that shows a lack of understanding of economic realities.
2: Well, I think when people are answering that question, and it's it's interesting on all of these things, it's like on the guaranteed annual income discussion, you know, there's a superficial answer and then you kind of work your way through it and you really find out what people are actually saying. So on this one, people would really like to have a vaccine. So uh, vaccine necessary to return back to pretty much exactly the same life that they had before. Does it mean that there are not various aspects of reopening up that they feel that they could accommodate without a vaccine? When you start to probe more, you think you find out things like going to restaurants or, or going out uh, to malls, for example. People would be able to consider that. Uh, social distancing might be enough to give them the confidence to be able uh, to participate in those kinds of activities. But doing something like traveling on an airplane or going to a concert or going to a sporting event, which you you're shoulder to with other people, we'd be a lot more confident if we had a vaccine available to
0: us. Okay. Uh, I wanted to ask you about that aspect of the, uh, the, so the entertainment world and Canadians, because you did polling uh, for Global News on that as well. But the physical distancing polling you did, I found particularly interesting. Forty percent of Canadians say they are not rigorously practicing physical distancing rules as the pandemic continues that's up from 26 percent in april uh and and it's a provincial issue saskatchewan manitoba 48 percent do practice physical distancing regularly uh rigorously in ontario only 32 percent how does that all break down what what are people doing
2: well i think that there's a uh you know the longer we go on uh, the longer that this situation exists the harder it's going to be able to to, to keep people indoors particularly as the weather improves so uh, I, I, I think that what this is suggesting is that the the cracks are starting to, starting to emerge. It's almost like a spring thaw, right? You can start to see yes. the cracks appear in the ice. Yes. And that's kind of what we're seeing right now.
0: The first few days where it's sunny and the temperature hangs around in the low 20s, forget about it. People are going out.
2: Yeah, and, and we probably, and, you know, today's a beautiful day. and We may even be, uh, be seeing a certain amount of uh, reporting on people not exactly sticking to whatever it is that uh, that needs uh, they need to stick to. But the issue, though, Roy, big, the bigger issue is in, in this is as we go further along, we don't see people actually saying that they're personally in physical threat as a result, as a result of COVID. That number mm-hmm. really hasn't moved very much, and it's a minority point of view. And the more they see that this is really dangerous for a very specific part of the population, they start to feel a little more secure themselves. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be hard to keep the keep this all tamped down for a long period of
0: time. 5% of Canadians saying socializing as they did prior to the pandemic. You know, it sounds like a small number, but it's a big number.
2: But they may not have socialized much at all. Well, that's interesting, too. Yeah, Yeah. so they're doing what they always did. I mean, one of the things we talked about in Next is uh, is, uh, uh, that the fastest-growing household in Canada is a person living by themselves. In fact, it's the most common type of household now. So if you didn't socialize much before because you were living on your own – this has been really been no change
0: uh, when it comes to the issue and I'm, I'm going to be opening up the phone lines after I speak with you about this and asking people to share their thoughts very quickly on on, a, on several of the polls postponing elections 72% want to see elections pushed back nationally but there's a gender difference here how does this break down what are Canadians saying about holding elections scheduled elections or if you look at the federal reality with a minority government the potential for a federal election really almost any time what are they saying
2: uh, I think It's kind of regionally contingent. And when I think people are talking about elections, they're thinking federal election more than they are provincial election, at least in the way that uh, things break down regionally, which is the most interesting thing for me in in terms of what I saw. Uh, And it's places like Saskatchewan and Manitoba that are the most uh, interested in having elections. But even there, it's only minorities. And and I think what these data are showing is that uh, people who are not particularly satisfied with the federal government before and gave them a pretty rough ride during the last election, while they may be more positive about it, uh, about the federal government uh, at this moment, they're, they're not completely won over by Justin Trudeau, so they still want a, you know an opportunity to, uh, to pass judgment on him. But by and large, what Canadians are saying in the polling right now is politics suspended. Uh, everybody all hands on deck. They expect the opposition parties and the government to all be working together to get us through this.
0: It's really fascinating and I think very helpful to get these uh, snapshots, if you will, of Canadian attitudes on important issues as we go forward, as we roll out and roll through the getting into the springtime and the reopening of our societies incrementally to find out how Canadians are, are reacting, how we're seeing things, how we're expecting things to happen. When it comes to the issue of pandemic and Canadians' work and pay, now in Air Canada yesterday saying 20,000 jobs were going to be gone. Uh, three million out of work in March, April. That's a number that just absolutely is hard to get your head around. In this country, it's three million in one week in the United States, but they have such a massively larger population. Nearly 20% who still have their jobs, Daryl, as you point out in your Ipsos polling, are receiving reduced pay. Some are working fewer hours while others are working the same hours, but with reduced pay. Uh, and businesses taking a major hit to their bottom line. How do we, uh, how do we really Encapsulate all of that information from that poll.
2: Well, I think what we're seeing now is that people are starting to figure out that while in initial in the initial stages of this that it was a general thing affecting everybody all roughly the same and general approaches to what was going on were probably the best, they're starting to figure out that there are some very specific things. First on the healthcare front, it's about older people, particularly people in group care. Uh, so something special has to be done on that and it doesn't necessarily apply to the general population in the same way. The second thing that they're figuring out is there are uh, that this is economic carnage as much as anything. So, to the extent that people see it's, it's it's a health situation, they certainly do, but they see it more as an economic situation right now. So, they uh, it's it's interesting when you go and you ask people, do you know anybody who's been affected, or do you, have you personally been infected? It's a really small number. It's like, uh, or, or do you even think you're going to get it? It's only about thirty percent of the population. But when it comes to have you lost your job? Are you working fewer hours? Have you been affected financially as a result of this? The numbers are much, much, much larger. So it's a healthcare issue, but it's an economic disease. It's really hurting people's personal prosperity and that's what really has them worried.
0: That's very interesting, healthcare issue, economic disease. Um, Okay, so now it's the long weekend in many parts of the country. It's a beautiful day. People want to get out. People are getting out golf courses. Our opening, we're going to talk with somebody who's uh, involved in that particular industry tomorrow. Um, So when it comes to entertainment, people going out, sporting events, we heard the premier uh, voice clip from the premier of British Columbia, John Horgan, at the beginning of the segment here. When it comes to people going out for entertainment, whether it's movies, whether it's dinner, whether it's sporting events, what are we saying?
2: Well, we're saying on uh, things in which it's possible to practice some sort of social distancing, like going to a restaurant where they've made... Uh, accommodations for keeping people apart. 60% of us are interested in it. I think the number's in the 60s. Same thing for shopping in a, in a mall, where I can keep distance and I can sort of control the situation. But going to a sporting event, uh, traveling, like booking foreign travel and flying on an airplane, or going out to, say, for example, a movie theater, much less um, uh, uh, interested in doing that right now, mainly, I think, because there's a, a sense of a lack of ability to control your contact with other people. So that's those are the things that, until we have a vaccine, are going to be pretty rough to get people reengaged on. Yeah,
0: Great polling, great information, uh, Daryl. Thank you so much for, for doing that and uh, for Global News, for getting it all to us, and, uh, and for you for coming on again today. You're spending a lot of time with us. Thank you.
2: Uh, it's a real pleasure. I always appreciate being on, Roy. Thank you very much. All
0: right. Take care. Daryl Bricker is the president and CEO of the Ipsos Public Affairs Firm. Uh, They're a global, international company, but the numbers you hear have to do with this country, with Canada. The Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, CERB, is not scheduled to go on indefinitely. And the question is, has become, Can we afford anything even close to this type of monthly government support for individual Canadians as a regular course? The pandemic-related financial support programs rolled out by the federal government have reignited debate on whether all Canadians should receive what's called the universal basic income. It's been debated for many years. Would that work to everyone's benefit, or would it sink the nation into crushing debt? A multi-decade proponent of UBI joins us, Hugh Siegel, former Canadian senator, chief of staff to Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, past chair of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, and uh, author, his most recent book is Bootstraps Need Boots. Senator, I love the title.
1: Well, I'm glad so- you do, and I'm delighted to, to uh, take your questions today.
0: It's been a long time since you and I spoke, and thanks for coming on. It has been a
1: on. while, but uh, I do remember those previous interviews.
0: Well, good. We're uh, <laughs> trying to make a, try to create some memories. For for many years now, you've advocated for a universal basic income and uh, two fundamental freedoms: freedom from fear and freedom from want. And I want to give credit to John Ibbotson in the Globe and Mail. He wrote the story that I found particularly interesting and wanted to talk to you about. Are we straddling the line of a universal basic income now during the pandemic, with the federal government assuring Canadians of up to two thousand per month temporarily? as the pandemic has forced Canadians indoors in the main?
1: Well, as we speak, Roy, there's about 7 million Canadians who woke up one morning a few weeks ago to find they had no jobs, for no fault of their own. And the federal government, um, and I think they deserve credit for this, realized that provincial welfare wouldn't help those people in any efficient way, um, and that EI was too convoluted and complex and too creaky as a program to really provide any assistance, so they came up with the CERB, and that has produced 2000 a month for those 7 million people. Um, on a day-to-day basis, before the pandemic, uh, there are about 4 million Canadians who live beneath the poverty line right across Canada, and they are largely supported only by provincial welfare programs. And in every province uh, of Canada, provincial welfare doesn't give anybody more than half uh, the poverty line in that province. So if the poverty line would be something like fourteen thousand dollars a head, perhaps depending on the province, then that individual would be getting something like about six hundred and forty to seven hundred and ten dollars a month, plus all poverty uh, welfare programs in the provinces prohibit work in the sense that. If you find a job and are a benefit holder and you earn, let's say, another couple hundred, two, couple of two hundred months, two hundred dollars a month more, then the provincial governments generally claw back the, that money that you've earned dollar for dollar from the basic grant. So it's a powerful disincentive to work. I think. Well, Senator, why, why
0: wouldn't, why, how would, how, how would a universal basic us? income not be a disincentive to work?
1: Yeah, well, because. Um, if you're a recipient of, let us say, $710 a month in Ontario, and you find a job uh, that could generate another couple of hundred bucks a month, because you want, you know, 710 bucks a month is not a lot to live on. You want to improve your circumstance, that of your family. If you find a job that earns more than 200 bucks a month, then the province will take back $200 of the base grant uh, to make up for the extra money that you've received. So it's a huge disincentive to work. Um, and I think that that is any welfare program that discourages people from working, which is most of what our provincial welfare programs do, is really, really very unproductive and counter So let, let me counter- ask you this. When, when,
0: when we're talking about a universal uh, basic income, yeah. the response quite frequently, immediately, is uh, that it's, uh, it's shutting down personal incentive to set and accomplish goals, and it's prohibitively expensive. And you know there was a, a, professor, economics professor from British Columbia who appeared before Parliament and argued that uh, if you had, I think it was if you had a $2,000 per month per individual basic income, the cost to the Canadian taxpayer would be $60 billion a month.
1: Yeah, so I'm not arguing for um, what he is uh, costing, because his costing is excessive based on a model which doesn't and should not exist. We already provide a basic income, for example, for senior citizens. If you are 65 years of age or older, you are guaranteed that whatever your other sources of income may be, you will not live on less than 1200 bucks a month. And the guaranteed income supplement, which is based on your tax filings, by the way, tops you up to 1200 from whatever your actual number may be. And that does not cost anything like the the amount of money that Professor Milligan has referenced. We have done tests. There was a test in Dauphin, Manitoba in the mid-'70s under the first Trudeau government and the Schreier administration uh, in Manitoba, where they provided this basic income guarantee in the town of Dauphin and a few other areas not too far removed, and the amount of people who showed up to work every day didn't reduce at all. Because people knew they had this guarantee, but they wanted to work, as most Canadians do. They wanted to earn their own way. They wanted to benefit from the extra income, but they knew that if they had a collapsing job circumstance or the plant where they work closed or it was a bad year in terms of crops, they would get a top-up and they would be okay. And that produced not only people continuing to work and being in the workforce happily, But it also produced some real benefits, such as the use uh, during that period of time of the Manitoba health insurance plan was reduced by 8% because people felt healthier knowing that they had this basic income in the event they got into difficulty.
0: Senator, I have no to keep, I have to keep an eye on the clock. I ha- Let me ask you this. Why, the world. why you, you made this argument yeah. for many years and you believe very strongly in this clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Why has it not been adopted? I, mean, I know it's been tried. It was tried in Ontario and the in Premier Ford uh, dismantled the, 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 uh, yes, the, that's, the, right. the, uh yeah. that's what was it? It was a, it was a pilot project that they had he in Ontario, pilot. right? It ran yeah. In, right. Uh, so, but city city. why has it not been adopted at some point somewhere? If it's such a great idea, why has it not been adopted? What's the reason for that?
1: Well, there is one, there's a form of it working now in Stockton, California, and it's been up for the better part of a couple of years, and it's producing very good results. There was a, uh, a program that ran in Finland, which produced good results where people stayed in the workforce and were committed to staying in the workforce. There's a program that is run by private charities in Kenya, which is working pretty well. All right, are these I programs revenue neutral? Senator?
0: Senator, Senator, are these programs revenue neutral?
1: there is a trend towards this because here's what we know we know that welfare is inefficient we know
0: that welfare is unfair. No, I understand that. But that welfare... but but let me let me ask you are these programs revenue neutral or does it eventually end up costing the taxpayer more which I'm, what i'm getting at is yeah. i'm not getting at to the uh, i'm entitled to my entitlements argument. So but 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 if it's not revenue neutral then the people who are actually receiving the, the the guaranteed income universal basic income will end up paying for somebody else to get there so how does how do things really improve?
1: Well, here's what happens. Um, And I have one minute. Basic income and people stay in the workforce. When they stay in the workforce because the plan encourages them to work, they are taxed on that income. That income helps defray the cost. And, for example, if we had a basic income at, let us say, about $1,400 a month in Ontario, none of those recipients would be eligible for provincial welfare because their income would be too high. And welfare costs Ontario $11 billion a year. That would be a saving and plus there'd be other programs that this could replace which would be which would produce a circumstance that at least in the initial time was almost revenue neutral and would probably end up. Being are, you over- are you surprised are
0: you surprised no federal political party or even provincial political party that I'm aware of has actually run with this idea of a universal basic income as a cornerstone platform for their election campaign.
1: Well, they haven't yet, but they've come close. The Green Party has been in favor of it for over 10 years, to be fair. The uh, Liberals had two policy resolutions passed their national policy congresses uh, over the last two years in favor of a basic income, Um, and the NDP is now calling for it as we speak. The Conservatives don't have any interest in it, and when I was a Conservative senator, that was one of my great sources of frustration, and I think it's because Conservatives sometimes are really prepared to provide... Liquidity for the banks and the large financial institutions. When it comes to average folks, they're just not
0: there. Senator, and I I, I have to, I, 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 right have to stop, I have to stop I have to stop it as here. Voter, uh, but every political party has the opportunity to run. Uh, this program as a cornerstone during the election campaigns, and so far, they haven't done it. But I've enjoyed speaking with you again.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: Talk to you again about this. Thanks, Senator Senator Hugh Siegel, also former chief of staff for Brian Mulroney when Mr. Mulroney was the. Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, This story is very disturbing. Um, Southern Ontario businessman's 96-year-old father was taken by ambulance to an area hospital after the father experienced a fall. The uh, son's name is Mark. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network. Mark, thank you for the time. And I just want to set this up a little bit and then ask you to, to share what happened. Your father's 96, resides in a seniors' residence in southern Ontario, which in this province has been the focus of the greatest concern and where most of the COVID-19 deaths occurred in seniors' residences. What happened a few nights ago at the seniors' residence where your father lives and then in the hospital?
3: Thanks for having me on, Roy. Well, um, a little bit, as you mentioned, disturbing. I get a phone call at 10 p.m. on a Monday night, which is actually uh, three weeks ago this coming Monday. About 10 p.m. Father had a fall. He seems to be falling. He's 96. And this time he said he hit his head and he's got a bloody nose and a little blood on his forehead and his cheeks. So they take him to the uh, local hospital. From there, I get a call about an hour later Suggesting I should come and pick him up and take him back to his uh, residence. So, for me, as I, I, I continue to work, we're deemed essential, so we're still uh, still operating. I let the nurse know that I didn't feel comfortable coming to get him, called the senior's residence, expressed my concern, a few calls back and forth. And in the end, I had to come, I, I had to go and pick him up and take him back. To the seniors' residence, and you know, I was uncomfortable doing it, but I, I did it anyway. So I show up at the hospital. I I announce myself. There's no one there. It's dead quiet. It's a Monday night, eleven o'clock by now, eleven thirty. And the uh, the attendant chases the nurse down. They wheel my dad out and in a wheelchair, and he's uh, there in a uh, hospital gown. Normal tied behind your back thing, as if you're going to get an X-ray or whatever. His underwear on, a bag on his lap with his clothes. Seven degrees outside, and they uh, they just tell me to take him away.
1: Just
0: like that? Just like that. And you told me there was caked blood on your father's face as well.
3: Oh, sure. So, so you know, the old uh, athletic tape, the white tape we used to wrap around our wrists and so he's got a piece right of tape across his forehead one down his nose blood on both cheeks he's ready to go
0: and you said it, to them
3: it was, it was it was annoying
0: yeah well you pointed out to them that your your business is deemed essential so you're around people on a daily basis and you wanted to know whether you should be tested for covid 19 since you were going to be driving your father back to the residence
3: I actually asked them if they tested my dad he's in a residence where there's zero cases. So now I'm, I'm, you know, he arrives by ambulance to the hospital, which is, by the way, across the street from his residence. And I asked them, I said, look, at, so have you, have you tested him? Because I not only do I go to work every day, I'm, I'm with people, even though we're social distancing and doing everything we're supposed to do. But I'm still around people. He is in a residence at the age of 96. The average person in there, I'm not sure, Roy, would be 75. Something like that, and they don't have a case on the go, and they've got me picking him up. And you know, the crazy thing is, the resident said, "Well, he hasn't been out for 24 hours, so it's okay." Really? <laughs> wow. Like
0: that one? Oh, that, that one? I, I oh wow, that one just blows me away. Um, and, and there was no there was no concern that you might be. Uh, an asymptomatic carrier of COVID-19, or you might have contracted COVID-19 sometime in the previous 72, 96 hours, let's say, and weren't showing any symptoms, and you were going to be exposed to your dad, taking him back to the seniors' residence. That was all fine. Just take him back.
3: That's right. So when you, you raised that... I, I, I walked in, sorry, right? I didn't mean to interrupt, but I walked. No, in go ahead. Ahead. I was walking into uh, to Walmart right now. I walked right into the hospital. No one asked me a question. It's more difficult to deposit a check at the TD Bank than it is to walk into that that particular emergency board.
1: When you when you
0: raised that point that you had concerns about taking your father back, you taking him back, they brought him by ambulance. They could have taken him back by ambulance, but anyway. Uh, you, you raised that point that you had concerns for his health, for the other residents in the seniors' home. Uh, you had concern for their health because you didn't know. You, you can't definitively say whether you contracted COVID-19 in the previous day, two or three, and weren't showing any symptoms. And, and there was there was no concern. Just you know, go ahead, Mark. Take your dad and, and leave.
3: In a wheelchair, in a gown, seven Gee. degrees outside. That particular hospital, the closest I could park was probably, without exaggeration, let's just say 100 feet. So I'm wheeling them out in seven degrees. Oh, they did bring me some blankets after I, I lost my head a little bit. And uh, I probably should have, you know, had I been a bit younger, I would have taken a picture, but I, I just didn't, uh, it didn't dawn on me right away to take a picture of them. <laughs> they, did, they brought me some blankets. I wrapped them in the blankets, wheeled them outside, threw them in my Jeep. I hate to say it that way, but I I helped him into my Jeep. He can barely move anyway. He's falling all the time. Get him and put him in, and I walk, again, it's right across the street. So I drive right across the street, and they were waiting for me because I had contacted them, said I'm on my way. Put him in another wheelchair, and they, they took him into the building, and off I went back home.
0: How does this leave you feeling? I'm sorry? How does this leave you feeling, this whole incident?
3: Well, like, I... I <laughs> Well, I, I you know um, the the problem is that there's so much made about everyone being so darn careful and I, and I walk into a hospital where I would think the utmost care would be taken. he's ninety six, he's absolutely in the top end of potentially being at risk. and I was just surprised I, I I actually, as I said, I lost my head a little bit. I was asking questions like how how do you let this happen? Why wouldn't you put him right back in an ambulance? it's right across the street yeah. and what I don't, I don't i didn't understand it it was really kind of disturbing and you know it i wrote a, a note to my friends the next day just right just because of my frustration i just didn't uh, i mean i didn't lose my mind completely but i was very disturbed by by the way they acted there it was almost like get him out of here we don't he, he you know we're not even going to test him get him out of here and let's go
0: Mark, thank you for sharing the story. People need to know about incidents like this. we need to know what's going on. Thanks. All the best to you, and uh, I'm gonna stay in touch with you and see what we you know if anything develops. But thank you.
3: Thanks for allowing the time, Roy.
0: Yeah, good talking to you. so there's the uh, there's the story I wanted you to hear. You'd think at the very least some testing would have been asked for, expected ninety six years of age i'm reading a book now and uh, have a pdf version and uh, the title of the book is no ordinary dog it's the story of cairo the belgian malinois dog which accompanied u.s navy seal team six on the raid into pakistan which saw osama bin laden killed by the seals this one dog was on the ground the only military dog to be on the mission and was on the ground And the the book really is about the dog's remarkable life, including uh, helping his handler and Navy SEAL, Will Chesney, deal with PTSD. And so Mr. Chesney has uh, written a book about uh, Cairo, and the author is No, at least the the title of the book is uh, No Ordinary Dog. Will Chesney, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. And uh, Cairo is with us no longer And we'll talk about that shortly But from what I understand What I've been reading in the book You didn't want to be Cairo's handler initially Why was that and what changed?
4: Hey, thanks for having me on uh, When I was introduced to the dog program I, uh, I was already a Navy SEAL But uh, I didn't really know what I was uh, talking about When it came to dogs, I guess um, We had people there at the command that did that job for us that, uh, you know, every, every person's different and every dog's different. And, um, we have people there to kind of watch you get hands on every dog and see which personalities go best with, uh, which handler. And, uh, it's a decision is made, but during that time of handling the dogs, um, there was two dogs in particular. I like, uh, Bronco and Cairo. Uh, they were both friendly and hard workers. All the dogs were really hard workers, but, uh, the decision was made to give me Cairo and, It was a great decision.
0: Yeah. I I certainly get that reading the book, the relationship that you had with Cairo and the entire uh, SEAL Team Six, all the SEALs had a great relationship uh, with Cairo. I read one part, one of the reviews, um, where he actually participated in all the activities with the SEALs. I think that included eating pizza and watching movies.
4: Yeah. We considered him one of the family. Yeah. These dogs have to go everywhere that we go. And that's where that's you know skydiving or fast roping slick floors gunfire explosions these dogs have to be around everything so we take them on all the training trips and they do everything with us including hang out with us
0: there was one uh, one story that really caught my attention about this dog and uh the trust that exists first of all there's the trust between the uh between the handler you who are doing a job on the ground as a special operator and the dog who's doing a job on the ground as a special operator as well but there's a story about Cairo being able to d- distinguish between a baby and a hiding insurgent, and he was never trained to be to make that kind of distinguishing decision. Tell us about that.
4: Yeah, there was one operation we were on where, I guess, Cairo ran past a baby, and these dogs uh, use their mouth to speak. Sometimes when they're anxious, they'll pick up pillows and blankets. And, um, I don't know why he didn't bite the baby. I think... You know, the baby wasn't a threat, and these dogs, can they can feel your energy. And uh, that's a big, one of the biggest uh, tools that we use in dog training is your emotions run up and down the leash, so they can feel that energy. If you're in a bad mood and you're angry, they're going to feel that. If you're in a good mood and you're happy and playful, they're going to feel that as well. So I think the, uh, the dogs, since there was no threat, and he wouldn't engage the threat that was there, though.
0: And, and he did find the threat in the next room, and he took care of that threat. He did. What is it that makes a, a, a dog behave to, you know, to intuitively understand? We've all had, most of us, uh, I would think listening to this program now, at one time or another in our lives, have had dogs in our lives. For me, it's been most of my life. And, and I love them. All their personalities are different. The relationship that you have with one dog isn't necessarily the relationship you're going to have with another dog. Even if they look the same and even if they're from the same breed, they're very different. What is it about the uh, about, about a dog, about about Cairo, that made him different, that made him the dog that he was, that he could get involved, get engaged in, in battles and situations and be completely uh, trusted and predictable? What was it about that dog?
4: yeah I don't think he was any ordinary dog. He, he like to say what he uh, he had a switch when he put on a vest it was time to go to work and he could turn the switch on and he was really good at his job. He did his job well. you, know, you have to stay on top of their training But Cairo, was uh, was very fortunate to have him, but he also had the switch when he got back <clears throat> and wasn't working uh, he could turn it off when he, when he took the vest off he could hang around the boys uh, towards the end of his career life by trust him around, you know, women and children especially. He even got attacked by my girlfriend's mom's bulldog uh, and he didn't retaliate at all. He was a real chill, laid-back dog. Not all these dogs have that. You know, we ask a lot of these animals to, you know, go and fight somebody twice their size in a dark room and not let go. They have to be not scared of slick floors and gunfire and skydiving, so it's not easy to find a dog that can turn it on and off like that. A working dog. We are out
0: there. Yeah, tell us about the time when you were in Afghanistan with the other SEALs on a mission which almost cost Cairo his life. You had a medevac. Tell us about that.
4: We were going after a couple of bad guys. They ended up setting up an ambush in a tree line uh, with an automatic weapon. They are trying to get us in and uh, shoot a couple of us. We ended up uh, sending Cairo in. He did, uh, they, they weren't coming out of the trees, so we ended up sending Cairo in to find them. When he did, um, ended up allowing them to show their hand, and uh, we engaged them before they could hurt any of us. Unfortunately, Cairo was shot through his forearm and his chest during the process, and um, a lot of the times when the dogs get shot like that, they just don't make it. Um Fortunately, we, you know, when these dogs are injured like that, they're treated just like any other soldier. You know, we, one of the teammates helped me provide medical care for him. The helicopter pilots flew in, picked him up just like any soldier would. The actual surgeons worked on him when we got back to base. So um, a lot of good people helped save his life. And not only did they get him back and working, but helped rehab him go on to do other missions as well.
0: I can hear the emotion in your voice when you're talking about that. And uh, there was one point during his recovery, and you didn't really know whether he was going to make it or not, where he, he just licked you. And at that moment, you realized he was going to be
4: all right. Well, like I said, it's, uh, dogs usually don't survive a gunshot. gunshot. Mm-hmm. He didn't yeah. look so good. Luckily, there was great people to help, help pull him through, and I, I slept with him right there on the, on the floor to make sure somebody was with him. But uh, these dogs are tough. What they can do is amazing, and he
2: pulled through. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, what was his job on that uh, on that uh, Bin Laden mission? What What was Cairo's job?
4: Uh, Cairo was trained to detect explosive odor and man odor. So, our job that night was to do sweeps of the perimeter. Cairo was looking for any IEDs or explosives, any tunnel systems or where somebody might be able to escape. Once we were done with the perimeter, we moved our way to the inside where we conducted sweeps looking for explosives or same thing, any hidden rooms anywhere somebody might be hiding. Uh, once we were done there, we made our way to the exfil And uh, I remember landing back on base knowing that we accomplished the mission and everybody was still alive. And, you know, Cairo, I got to deal with Cairo. It was a moment I'll never forget, that's for sure.
0: Now, you were redeployed without Cairo after the Bin Laden raid and you had a very difficult time with uh, with health uh, mental health PSD PTSD and and again Cairo enters your life how did that happen
4: yeah, I suffered a grenade injury in 2012 I had some traumatic brain injury CDI along with some other issues and uh, during that time Cairo was coming to the end of his working years as well so, uh, I figured I'd actually worked out because if I was still working as a seal, I probably would have been too busy to take it home. The, uh, these are working dogs, and we treat—you know—you have to treat them with respect, and uh, they have to go to the proper homes when they're retired. They can't just go to any home. And um, luckily, I had good people taking care of me. I was going to some medical appointments, and um, I was able to take Kyra home, and they saw that. And when I got him home, it was very good. They got to take care of him when he needed me towards the end of his life, and. It was uh, it was good to have him around for me as well.
0: Yeah, there's the hard part. Uh, they do get old. Uh, a friend of mine said years ago, the, really, the big problem with dogs is they die too too soon. Uh, they do get old, and Cairo got, got old, and uh, he was dealing with the realities of the battles he's fought alongside you, and uh, you had to have him put to sleep. Um, and you're still troubled that he didn't get a silver star for that bin Laden raid. But I love what you wrote. You said at least he but he did get he did get a book.
4: Yeah, he's got a great book. I think we did a really good job. If we don't do what we do for the medals. But it's good for everybody to uh, it's a good piece of history. This is a good yeah. book for any animal lover, anybody looking to join the navy or the military. Yeah. Be a dog handler, be a seal. But we did a we did a good job putting a story together and I love seeing the good feedback
0: you know as i as i'm reading the book i i'm learning obviously about you and i'm learning about the the seals and the seal team but i'm learning primarily about cairo and uh, i think that's what you started to in, in started out to do was to tell cairo's story with the rest of the story with the rest of what was going on not incidental but it, the main story is that of your dog of cairo and i thought i think you did a great job with that will
4: Thank you very much. It was a piece of history. It was an honor to be able to not only have Cairo in my life, but all the other guys as well. I'm honored to be able to tell a story, and I think we did a great job. It's a piece of history. People get to hear about it. and It brings attention to what these amazing animals can do and the people that support them, and it also tells about a little bit of my personal story transitioning out of the Navy.
0: Yes. Will Chesney, thank you very much. No Ordinary Dog is the story of Cairo and Will Chesney.